0: You're always looking for inspiration when it comes to giving a a lecture, a talk, or the like. And um, a few Saturdays ago, I thought I had come upon it. It was an article on the third page of the Times newspaper. Uh, It had to do with Twitter's troll break fails miserably. And you probably won't be able to read the start of it, but uh, here it is. As it says in the book of... In the Bible, in the book of Isaiah, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. He was a little ahead of his time, but presumably Isaiah had positive Twitter day in mind when he wrote those words. Well, I suspect that most of us uh, will happily perhaps agree that this reading of the prophet Isaiah is somewhat tongue-in-cheek. I don't think the author of the article intends us to take this theological statement seriously. Uh, At least I hope not. But it illustrates an interesting point. The book of Isaiah is a wonderful resource for a rich variety of quotations. People often pick out passages in it. Uh, Steve, in a sense, has already alluded to that. But is there more to Isaiah than this? Um, How should we read the book as a whole? How do we get the most out of it? And what does it have to say to you and to me today? Let me begin by doing a short trailer. I kind of wish I could uh, you know, do this with flashing lights and music and all the like, but just to try and inspire you as far as the book of Isaiah is concerned. What's Isaiah about? Um, the book itself is largely an anthology... Of prophetic oracles that were spoken by the prophet Isaiah to the people of Jerusalem during the final decades of the 8th century BC. These speeches were compiled together with some additional material to create a unified literary work. As regards content, it is a book. About judgment and salvation. On the one hand, the book reveals God's righteous anger against people who have a religious facade, but are morally corrupt. It's a stark reminder of the danger that people place themselves in when they disregard their responsibility to God. On the other hand, it reveals the length, breadth, and height of God's love, as he provides atonement for human failure. It's a book that condemns the oppressor, but gives hope to the oppressed. It's a book that speaks to those exploited by others, holding out a future in which life may be enjoyed to the full. It's a book that confronts death and disease with the promise of total well-being in a regenerated world. It speaks of the transformation of dysfunctional, divided, xenophobic societies into a harmonious, multi-ethnic community where everyone lives in peace. It offers hope to the despairing, redemption to the lost, life to the dying. Not surprisingly, the book of Isaiah is sometimes labeled the fifth gospel. Before we unpack some of these themes, there are certain things that need to be taken into consideration by way of understanding the book. As we get into this anthology of prophetic oracles, we need to think, firstly, about context, and secondly, about structure and overview. One important principle that... uh, when it comes to understanding the books of the Bible, is the need to appreciate something of their historical context. A knowledge of context sharpens our appreciation of what's being said. It may help us appreciate why certain things are included, why certain things are not said. Understanding the context may prevent us from misunderstanding the text. Context is important. Behind the book of Isaiah lie certain traditions or beliefs that play an important part in grasping the significance of what Isaiah has to say. I want to mention a few of these briefly. And in doing so, dare I say, I need to deconstruct certain things that were said last Sunday evening. I hope you'll forgive me for this. If you were present last week, you may recall that our speaker drew attention to certain passages to create a three-stage structure regarding the kingdom of God. He began by picking out Genesis Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, And Genesis 15, material that he used to define the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Quite rightly, he said that this material focuses largely on God's promise of descendants and land to Abraham. Yet, the Abrahamic covenant is about much more than this. We also need to take into view Genesis 17, which actually provides us with the fullest description of the covenant. And when we do this, we discover that the emphasis is upon Abraham being the father of many nations, not just one. To signal this important idea, the patriarch's name is changed from Abram to Abraham. God's dealings with Abraham are not simply about the nation of Israel. They are about the nations of the world. God promises that through Abraham, and in particular one of his descendants, who will be a king, People from all the nations of the earth will be blessed by God. Unfortunately, this focus on the nations gets lost when people talk about the Abrahamic covenant. They tend to think that it only has to do with Israel and the land. This leads to all kinds of subsequent misunderstandings, uh, some of which unfortunately were apparent last Sunday evening. We were also encouraged last week to read the Old Testament through the eyes of the Canaanites. It's an interesting suggestion, but it has profound weaknesses. I would prefer to advocate that as Christians, we are called to read the Old Testament through the eyes of Jesus and his apostles. This is more likely to ensure that our reading of the text is the correct one. Not all readings are equally valid. It's clear from the Gospels that Jesus often corrected Mistaken interpretations of the Old Testament. So when we study the Old Testament, it's important to be guided by Jesus and those he authorized to speak in his name. In other words, the early apostles. Here's how the apostle Paul describes the Abrahamic covenant in Galatians 3. It's just part of what he has to say. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For Paul, the blessing of the nations lies at the heart of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham is the father of all who have faith. The covenant, in Paul's thinking, is not primarily about Israel and land. Now this emphasis upon the blessing of the nations is important for the prophet Isaiah. It is one of the important traditions that informs what he has to say. Look at how the nations are the focus of attention in Isaiah 2. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come. Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Israel, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. So note there how the nations shall flow to the mountain of God in order to be taught by God. And the outcome of it is this. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Later, in the book of Isaiah, chapters 13 to 23, a substantial part of the book, will focus on the nations. This begins in chapter 13 with Babylon, and then he goes on to mention the Philistines, the Moabites, He mentions Damascus, Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, Tyre. Isaiah's oracles highlight how these nations are out of step with God. Yet there is within them the remarkable promise that these nations have the potential to be blessed by God, to be viewed as his people. Picking up on the two great opposing superpowers of his day, the prophet Isaiah has this to say about a future time. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Remarks like this have to be understood in the light of the Abrahamic Covenant. God's people will be drawn from all the nations of the earth. Contrary to popular belief, perhaps, the Old Testament is not just about Israel. God is interested in establishing his rule over the whole earth. The nations matter to God. And that's one of the traditions that you need to take into account when it comes to looking at the book of Isaiah. See how he looks outward to the whole world. Let me mention another. It concerns the special role that the Davidic dynasty is to play in the fulfillment of God's plan for the earth. Building upon the Abrahamic covenant, there is an expectation that one of Abraham's descendants will be a unique king, through whom God will overthrow the powers of evil, establishing his kingdom on earth. The Old Testament story which is about real people and events, associates this future king with the Davidic dynasty. Importantly, when David captures Jerusalem from the Jebusites, he establishes it as the city of God by bringing to it the Ark of the Covenant, the foot of God's throne. David's special relationship with God leads to his son Solomon building in Jerusalem a temple or divine palace where God comes to live in a special way. This gives Jerusalem a special, unique status. The Holy One of Israel, the King of Kings, lives there. When it comes to the book of Isaiah, special attention is given to both the city of Jerusalem and the Davidic king. Both are central to God's plan for the world. Isaiah draws on the traditions of the past, and he predicts how these traditions will shape the future. As we shall see, Isaiah looks forward to the coming of a unique Davidic king, Jesus Christ, through whom God's blessing will be offered to both Israel and the nations. Now, much more could be said about the traditions and beliefs that provide an important context for understanding Isaiah, but we need to move on quickly to think about the book's structure. An overview of the book is helpful for understanding its contents and message. Uh, Again, often as Christians, we we tend to read biblical texts in an atomized form. Uh, A few verses here, perhaps a chapter or two. Rarely do we read an entire book at one sitting in order to get a sense of the overview Reading a biblical book is a little bit like building a jigsaw. You have to understand how the different pieces fit together in order to get the complete picture. Isaiah is a complex jigsaw. It's one of the longest books of the Old Testament, 66 chapters. It's easy to get lost in the process of reading it. So let me try and give you a sense of how this jigsaw might best be put together. Uh, This is very selective, somewhat simplified. Um, I I teach a course on Isaiah in the college, and usually the students get 12 hours of lectures or so. Um, So we're by no means covering everything this evening. Let's think about Isaiah. Isaiah as a tale of three cities. Three cities, but all with the name Jerusalem. Firstly, there is the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day. The Jerusalem that existed towards the end of the 8th century BC. Isaiah paints a very bleak picture Of this city. We'll see more of this in a few minutes. This is the city that is largely the setting for chapters 1 to 39. Although occasionally in these chapters we get glimpses of another Jerusalem. Isaiah's message to this Jerusalem is menacing. The city Will be destroyed. It is the doomed city. So chapters 1 to 39 focus on the doomed city. But this leads to Isaiah speaking about a second city, a reconstructed Jerusalem. And here the focus is on, is on chapters 40 to 48, the next section of the book. Beyond the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians in 586 BC, Isaiah predicts the restoration of the city. Isaiah's comments, or his oracles in chapters 40 to 48, speak of events that occur towards the end of the 8th century BC. And in particular, they involve a Persian monarch called Cyrus. Cyrus is going to set in motion events that will lead to the rebuilding of the temple. And in due course, the city walls will be fully repaired. This is the second city that Isaiah speaks about. Let's think of it as the restored city. Finally, in chapters 49 to 66, Isaiah's oracles focus on events that will lead to the creation of a new Jerusalem. While this future Jerusalem is in some way related to the doomed Jerusalem, and the restored Jerusalem, it's also radically different. Let's refer to it as the eternal city. There are perhaps several helpful ways of thinking about it. Firstly, we might view it as the eschatological city, or an eschatological city. In other words... It's a city associated with a future time when God will recreate the earth. This is what God says through Isaiah in chapter 65. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Observe how God speaks here of creating a new heavens and a new earth. The language recalls the opening verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This passage in Isaiah speaks of a recreation of the cosmos. God's recreation, however, parallels in these verses... Uh, His recreation of the cosmos parallels in these verses the recreation of Jerusalem. But this is no ordinary Jerusalem. It's a city in which God takes delight. Its people are a joy to him. And if you read on in chapter 65, God has much more to say about the remarkable nature of this new Jerusalem. It's an eschatological city. But secondly, it may be helpful to also think of this city as a resurrection city. When Isaiah presents this new Jerusalem as a future city, he also views it, I think, as the ultimate destiny um, after death, of those who are God's people. People are resurrected from the dead to live in this city. This, I think, is important to grasp, but unfortunately, it's often missed by commentators. The New Jerusalem is not simply a utopian vision to be enjoyed by future generations down the road. It has an immediate relevance for Isaiah and his contemporaries. It's a city that is actually only a short step away. In line with this, Isaiah compares the resurrection experience to a return from exile. It is a coming home experience for those who are redeemed by God. I want to suggest to you that this is what Isaiah has in mind in these words from chapter 35. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And if we read on a few verses, a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness, the way to the holy city. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. While this passage does not speak directly, unambiguously of resurrection from the dead, the picture of return from exile far exceeds anything that happened when Judean exiles returned to Jerusalem at the end of the 6th century BC. Physical well-being An everlasting joy suggests that this picture of Zion portrays the eternal city. So as you read the book of Isaiah, give thought to these three cities. The doomed Jerusalem, the restored Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem. The structure I hope will be helpful, but be aware that glimpses of the eternal city come through in the earlier parts of Isaiah. Chapter 2, chapter 12, chapters 25 and 26, chapter 35. There's another way that we could think about the book of Isaiah. It's a book about divine judgment and salvation. Here's another structure that you might apply to it. The editor of Isaiah's Oracles creates a certain movement within the book. When we look at the book as a whole, it moves from focusing on a corrupt city that is under God's judgment and will be punished to a radically transformed city that's loved by God, and where people will enjoy life to the full. The opening chapters of Isaiah emphasize the waywardness of those ruling in Jerusalem. Isaiah portrays a city where those in positions of authority have abandoned the ethical teaching that God gave to their ancestors. We see the moral corruption of Jerusalemite society. This is reflected in the arrogance and pride of the people, the unrestrained selfish indulgence of the wicked, oh, sorry, of the wealthy and wicked, the exploitation of the poor and marginalized members of society, and complacency towards social justice. Isaiah's opening oracles convey a message of condemnation, indicting uh, or indicating that Jerusalem will be abandoned by God and destroyed. While warnings come to the wicked throughout the book, the whole book, later chapters focus more on how God comes to save, to rescue, to restore. And this movement from judgment to salvation is exemplified in the well-known description of Isaiah's call in chapter 6. As I read the first part of this, the question I want you to be asking is, why does Isaiah see God seated on his throne? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the lord almighty the whole earth is full of his glory at the voice at the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke now before i throw up the next part why is it significant that god is seated on his throne Any suggestions? What's the significance of the king being seated on the throne? It has to do with judgment. He is on his judgment seat at this particular point. And that's in the light of all that's In a sense, the call of Isaiah comes after five chapters in which the judgment of God has been pronounced upon Jerusalem. Um, What happens next? Well, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king the Lord Almighty. Then note what happens. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Isaiah's encounter with God is significant. God is seated on his throne, not to rest, but to judge. His holy nature is emphasized by the seraphim who cry out, holy, holy, holy. And as he stands before the judgment seat of the Lord Almighty, Isaiah becomes conscious of his own uncleanness. He's a man of unclean lips. He dwells among a people of unclean lips. Strikingly, however, when Isaiah confesses his guilt, one of the seraphim touches his mouth with a hot coal from the altar and says, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. Isaiah's personal experience of moving from judgment to salvation reflects the movement of the entire book. Before he can be used by God, Isaiah has to see himself for who he is before the Holy One. Isaiah has to recognize his own failure, his sin, his uncleanness before God. This is the way it is in the Gospels with John the Baptist and with Jesus. The summary message of their preaching is repent and believe. If the book of Isaiah has something important to say to the modern church and contemporary society, it's this divine judgment and punishment is real. As judge of all the earth, as the Holy One, uh, almost Isaiah's favorite way of referring to God, God holds people to account for their inappropriate actions and attitudes. He will punish. The people of Jerusalem may have viewed themselves as God's people, but that in itself did not prevent God from destroying the city. God was not prepared to overlook their religious hypocrisy. We would do well to reflect on this theme of divine judgment. The book of Isaiah pulls no punches when it speaks of God judging and punishing human perversity. But the overall purpose of Isaiah is not to leave people in despair. Rather, it is a message of hope, a message of salvation. Isaiah offers offers comfort. And we see this as the book transitions from chapters 1 to 39 to chapters 40 to 66. Chapter 40 begins with these amazing words. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, Several things are worth observing when it comes to thinking about how Isaiah presents this theme of salvation. The process of salvation involves the Davidic king. For this reason, when Isaiah focuses on doomed Jerusalem, he draws attention to the failure of two Davidic kings, Ahaz and Hezekiah. The failure of Ahaz in particular is set alongside promises of a future king who will bring justice and righteousness. Uh, Here I want you to think of chapters 9 and 11. Um, You will know this passage perhaps off by heart. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. When we move beyond chapters 1 to 39, we encounter two figures who are portrayed as being involved in this process of salvation. Both are chosen by God to bring salvation to others. But an interesting contrast exists. The first of these figures is a Gentile king called Cyrus. Towards the end of the 6th century, Cyrus is responsible for overthrowing the Babylonians. And he encourages Judean exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. Cyrus is linked to the restored city. He's a Gentile, a foreigner, but he functions like a Davidic king. The second individual is not named, but he's commonly referred to as the suffering servant. His role in bringing help to others far exceeds that of Cyrus. He is said to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 53 famously highlights how he gives his life in order to atone for the sins of others. By implication, the servant is involved in the creation of the eternal Jerusalem. Later in Isaiah, Isaiah attributes these words to the servant. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I hardly need to tell you that in his gospel, Luke begins his account of the public ministry of Jesus by noting how Jesus read these words in the synagogue at Nazareth. Significantly, Luke tells us that Jesus said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. With good reason, Christians see the book of Isaiah as pointing towards Jesus Christ. He is the promised Davidic king. His death is an atoning sacrifice. He invites us to become citizens of the future eternal Jerusalem. I hope this gives you a little bit of a steer towards understanding the book of Isaiah. Let me end by suggesting that Isaiah's message is exceptionally relevant today he may not have had in view positive Twitter day. And I doubt if Brexit would have meant anything to him. But as you read through Isaiah, one of the underlying themes is that salvation is not to be found in political alliances, no matter what form they take. In the face of trouble, King Ahaz looked to the Assyrians for help rather than trusting God. Hezekiah turned to the Egyptians for help. Neither solution was satisfactory. The book of Isaiah reminds us that security and well-being, what the prophet refers to as shalom, will only be found in the eternal Jerusalem. Whatever you think about Brexit, neither leaving nor remaining within the EU will guarantee shalom. Neither solution will save us from disease and death. As followers of Jesus, we look forward to that day when the King will return when the powers of evil will be overthrown, when all will be judged, when this earth will be renewed, and when those who have trusted in the suffering servant will inherit the new Jerusalem to enjoy resurrection life in the light of God's presence. Then, and only then, as Isaiah reveals, Will the wolf live with the lamb, the leopard lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. Thank you.